Let's go, girls. You're listening to Table Scraps Live with Evan Gigline on Pirate Christian Radio, a production of Table Talk Radio. On tonight's Table Scraps Live, we ask the question whether or not the Lord has given women the office of the Holy Ministry. Several passages forbid it, but still many churches continue to ordain women as pastors. How is this practice reconciled with the seemingly clear passages of Scripture? Tonight we hear firsthand. Here's Evan. Welcome to this edition of Table Talk Radio, talking about women's ordination, and we've had this conversation before on these airwaves, uh, talking about uh, whether or not uh, women can can be ordained in the office, and we can talk about it with people who we agree with a lot, but sometimes the best way to learn about things is to talk to those who take an opposite position. And when this idea came up, I knew uh, no better person to talk to than my old friend from college, Larry Anderson. Uh, Larry, welcome to the program. Hi, Evan. Thank you. Uh, Larry and I agree on on many things about the Holy Christian faith, uh, namely that uh, Christ is uh, the only uh, propitiation for sin, and it's in him we have faith and for our salvation. Um, but this this is one topic where, where we disagree with, and he has... has offered and, and agreed to come on to, to Table Scraps Live uh, to give us uh, his arguments for women's, or, for women's ordination. Uh, you can join this conversation. The phone number is 866-851-5523 or send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. All right, Larry, uh, starting off then, um, I want you to tell us what uh, the, the the holy ministry is. What is it that the, the pastor does? What is the pastor's role in the church? And uh, are those roles exclusive to just the pastor? To just the pastor or to just men? Uh, to, to, to the pastor. In, in other words, uh, what is what is it that, that the pastor does in the church? And that are those things that, that anyone can do in the church? I see. Well, I think that there is, in fact, uh, a distinction, um, as Thomas Oden points out, um, between laity and those who have received ordination, um, and that those practices related to ordination um, do in fact set individuals apart um, for functioning um, in the body of Christ for the purpose of, of representing um, the truth of, of Christ to the church, for pastoring, you know, being the shepherd of the flock, um, so caring, binding the wounds, um, speaking the truth, leading um, to greener pastures, to borrow the, the psalmist uh, imagery, um, and, uh, and those things are, I think, recognized um, as the task um, of those who function as the shepherd. Uh, are those then tasks that um, are are given to just the pastor? Are those tasks that that truly any Christian uh, can and should do? Well, I think all Christians should be like Christ, and to that degree, I think um, you and I both would would say that the reformers got it right when they talked about the priesthood of all believers. Um, and that we, and, and you know, that's something that Peter uh, declares in his epistle as well. Um, and and so I think all believers should be functioning 
um, like Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ. John tells us in his epistle that that we should walk as as Christ walked. Um, we should love as Christ loved. Um, uh, but I think that um, what may be the main distinction is um, the setting aside of one's time and energies to the exclusive um, digging into Scripture, if you will, um, and speaking the truth to encourage the body of believers to exercise their gifts to be like Christ. So in many ways, yeah, it's, it's um, ministry that should be done by all believers. Um, but the church has recognized that, that there are those who are set aside um, to um, make it their sole focus, their sole purpose, um, and um, probably to put all of their energy and all of their time into that task. Whereas I think laity um, are supposed to do those things, but it's not their exclusive task. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, one more question on, on, on the office itself, because I think that we have to come to terms of what we're talking about before we ha- can have the, this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one final question on this is, is where in Scripture do we see um, do we see God set forth pastors in the church? Or, or where, do, where do we understand the doctrine of the ministry from? Mm. Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, I, I, I've been looking at um, the gifts for ministry and... Um, uh, for another reason, but I, I guess it's it's all tied into because the word itself, pastor, comes from the term that means shepherd. Um, so when we look at various portions of the Old Testament, um, God Himself says, "I'll be your shepherd," and that's what that's what David describes in various places in the Psalms, and um, and so I would argue that the idea of pastoral ministry comes from the very heart of God and is consistent with what the term means, um, pastor slash shepherd. Um, and for me, that's, that's the heart of ministry, and it's the heart of God himself to care for his people. All right, very good. Okay, then uh, concerning then women in the ministry and uh, in, into the, the office of pastor— um, it seems like that there's one of two positions that that someone could take, um, that either Scripture doesn't forbid women to be pastors, or it does forbid it, but there's some reason that we can practice it today. Uh, okay. So does the Scripture forbid women's ordination? As I understand it, uh, no. Um, and I probably should should say that um, I, I grew up in a in a denomination where women um, have always been pastors um, as early as the founding of our denomination, which was in the 1860s. Um, women have always functioned in that role. They've always had the same rights and privileges as, as men in the church. So I grew up with that notion. Um, and honestly, I never knew any different until I, I got to college and engaged in conversation with with people who um, raised, you know, serious questions from their understanding of certain portions of, of Scripture. So I, 
I've always had that idea that women functioned completely as equals with men, both in the church and and um, in marriage. Uh, we so are, it's not. So it's not what I'm. I guess what I'm saying is it, it's not something that has been currently influenced by the culture of our day and time or new um, um, understandings or interpretations of, of Scripture. It's just something I always grew up with. You're hearing the voice of Larry Anderson. He's giving us the uh, the arguments and, and the defense for women's ordination, and you can call us to join this conversation. You are listening to Table Scraps Live, and the number is 866 866- Eight five one five five two three, or you can send us an email questions at tabletalkradio.org. Uh, that's eight six six eight five one five five two three, or questions at tabletalkradio.org. All right, Larry, let's then uh, look at some of these texts then uh, that would would come into question here. Let's first look at First uh, Corinthians fourteen, uh, mm-hmm. verse thirty four. The the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But they are subject; they are to su- subject themselves, just as the law also says. Uh, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. All right, is this then telling us then that that if if a woman is to keep silent in the church, it'd be kind of hard for her to be then a pastor and and teaching and and, and preaching in the church as well. Well, and I think that there are are people that would interpret it that way, but. Um, immediately you have problems with the passage if you compare it to what Paul had said earlier in chapter 11, verse 5, where he very clearly says, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So there's a conflict within those two passages within the same letter. Um, Were women praying and prophesying? Apparently so. Were they doing it in the church? Apparently so. Paul doesn't exclude them from doing it there in chapter 11. He just says that they should have some kind of a covering. Um, so how do we reconcile these these two apparent um, contradictions within the same letter? Um, and, and there are a number of interesting um, suggestions and possibilities as to how we, we reconcile them. Um, but I, I, I think I found in my, my own reading, um, uh, the most appealing understanding, at least, that would reconcile both what's going on in chapter 11 and what's going on here in chapter 14, that, um, a portion of what is being said, especially in verse, um, 34, um, one scholar, or several scholars actually, have suggested that that this is actually a quotation from the Jewish oral tradition. And so um, Paul's statement in verse 36, did the word of God originate with you or are are you the only people it has reached, um, would suggest that he's actually rebuking them for allowing that oral tradition, which would have, would be similar to the Judaizing question that was going on and that he addresses with the church at Galatia, um, and that he's actually um, rebuking them 
for subscribing to this Judaizing oral tradition. And that would reconcile, I think, with um, the, the issues with 11 verse 5. Uh, so that the, that so that thirty four is a is a quotation that 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 Paul is not saying this to the cur- the church at Corinth, but uh, a quotation from a, a different passage. Is is that am I understanding you right? Correct. That it's coming from some oral tradition of the Judaizers. There's been a number of scholars that have put that forward um, over the last twenty some twenty five years, and it seems a plausible explanation for me. And it reconciles the the discrepancy or the apparent contradiction with chapter eleven, verse five. All right, we are talking with Larry Anderson about women's ordination. The number, if you would like to join the conversation, is eight six six eight five one five five two three, or send us an email questions at tabletalkradio.org. That's eight six six eight five one five five two three, or send us an email questions at tabletalkradio.org. Dot org. Um, all right, Larry, let's then turn to uh, this passage of 1 Timothy, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. Uh, and, it, and it says this, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as it is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. But it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But woman will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So uh, again, we we have uh, what what seems to be Paul being pretty clear on on women not being allowed to teach in the church. Uh, so how do we read this one? Well, and again, that's a very um, excellent question, and and I can certainly see why some would read this initially and say women are supposed to be quiet that there that this is somehow a universal prohibition. Um, but again, it's very interesting. New, New Testament scholars um, have highlighted um, how difficult this particular portion of, of Paul's writing um, is. Um, both those who argue in favor of uh, women um, being ordained and functioning in the ministry of the church and those who do not, all, both sides of the issue say, look, we've got some serious complications as it relates to this particular passage. Um, but, but I think from my side of the argument, um, there's a couple of things that we should note right away. Um, th- this particular passage is um, raising some issues that we don't know the full story to. And I think that's true of all of, all of the uh, epistles, whether they're Pauline or, or the general epistles. We're only hearing one side of the, of the conversation, as it were. And so we have to, um, in, you know, in our exegetical work, um, attempt to find out what the other side of the conversation might be. Um, and so for that reason, 
um, a number of scholars have suggested, and I would tend to agree with them, that this is a very specific issue um, as it relates to the church at Ephesus. Um, if you look over at chapter 1, verse 7, uh, it says, um, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what uh, they so confidently affirm. Um, and so that, and, and there's some other passages um, in Second Timothy that suggest that there are clearly some false teachers um, in, in the church at Ephesus or people who want to be teachers. And so some scholars have suggested that this applied to a very specific group of, of women who were, in fact, teachers in Ephesus to uh, wealthy Greek men and women. Um, now, I don't know how accurate some of that is, but if that's the case, um, then some of what's being said here may be very specifically addressing that group of, of women. Um, and I also find it interesting, scholars have suggested that not only is this a specific situation at Ephesus and shouldn't be taken to apply universally, um, but they've also pointed out that um, Paul, in verse 12, is, is making it a personal judgment. He says, I do not permit, rather than a more formal, it is not permitted, um, which I think is maybe just be a very subtle distinction. But as some scholars have pointed out, it's a distinction worth noting. Um, again, um, suggesting that we're talking about a specific issue at Ephesus. Um, and so there's really uh, not a clear sense, at least for me, that this is a universal prohibition. And in fact, if, if it is a universal prohibition, then again, we have to raise serious questions about uh, the fact that we can see, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, that women were praying and prophesying out loud in the congregation. Um, so how do we, you know, um, um, reconcile those um, apparent contradictions? Um, the other thing that is interesting is in verse 11, he says very specifically, a woman should learn, and, uh, and that in and of itself may in fact suggest <laughs> um, that before speaking, they, they should know what they're talking about. So they should learn, and the rest of the phrase is, in quietness and full submission, which is the attitude that, um, especially in, in the Middle East, even to this day, but hopefully the attitude in any educational setting, whether it's the church or the academy, um, is the attitude of those who want to learn, that they are learning in quietness and in submission to, to the teacher. Um, so, I, and then Paul's uh, statement, starting at verse 13, again, I, th I think is um, uh, an issue related to how we understand the creation narrative. Um, and and in, uh, in my understanding, Paul is addressing um, the second creation narrative um, in, in chapter 2 of Genesis. Um, and in neither place um, 
whether we're talking about the creation narrative or Paul's understanding of the creation narrative, do we have any idea or sense of um, um, authority that is hierarchical in nature? So it's a matter of student-teacher um, and I think a very specific situation that, that we don't know the full extent of uh, in, in Ephesus. You can join the conversation by calling 866-851-5523, or you can send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. Um, I want to address your first point there uh, with the, uh, the issue. This is a, an issue specific for Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that the reason that... Uh, that that Paul brings forth here, that the support for his argument in verse 13 goes to the creation, which to me would seem to, to supersede any particular area. I mean, no, whether you're in Ephesus or Thessalonica or no matter where you are, uh, we, we both have the same parents. And to, to use Adam and Eve as, as the support for your point would seem to transcend a particular locale. Well, I suppose that that may be true, but why exactly is he using that example? He's talking about the fact that um, one person in the, in, in the creation narrative, which was um, Eve, um, was the one who's, who was deceived. And the implication is that, that she may not have learned in quietness and in submission. So it, it can be, I think, still limited to the specific situation in, in Ephesus. I don't know that, that using the creation narrative implies or um, even necessitates a universal um, conceptualization. Okay, now I want to go to that order of creation that you mentioned briefly. Because um, Paul, here, Paul here refers to that, and then you were talking about the, the different uh, creation narratives, uh, namely the second here. Um, would you elaborate on that? Uh, I mean, uh, so, so we have you know, the, the creation stories here in Genesis 1 and 2, mm-hmm. um, and in... Uh, in the latter, we have the more uh, extended version of, of how how creation came about, and and Paul here cites that that it was man who was created first, and then woman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how then how then are we to understand this order of creation as it relates to um, uh, the headship of man and woman? Oh, that's a very good question, and that I think is really for me the whole creation narrative is um, so important in understanding this question. I think it's foundational, in fact. Um, I find it interesting, both in this passage and in Paul's use of it in one or two other places, Ephesians chapter 5, I think he uses it there as well, um, and he alludes to it in, in a portion of the, of the um, letter to, to Corinth. Um, it, it's interesting that wherever he makes reference to the creation story, he only uses that portion of the story which we find in Genesis chapter 2. He never makes reference back to Genesis chapter 1. And I I happen to subscribe to to the um, JEDP theory um, as it relates to the the Pentateuch, Um, and, and specifically as it relates to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. 
I see two different um, stories, not not contradictory, um, but two different stories. Um, I see an editor's hand, if you will, um, Genesis chapter one um, up through chapter two, about verse four, maybe, or verse three. I probably should look. That would make it better. We'll tell it? you what. I'll let you look during this commercial break, oh, and then we'll okay. come back and pick up right where you left off. So don't go away. Okay. We're talking about women's ordination with Larry Anderson. You're listening to Table Scraps Live, and after this break, we'll let Larry continue his thought there on the on the narratives. Uh, of Genesis 1 and 2 in creation and uh, see how we'll continue talking about this. We'll be right back on Tables Talk Radio. Listening to Table Scraps Live with Evan Gigline on Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, co-host of Table Talk Radio. You know, one of the marvelous things about the gospel of our Lord Jesus is that there is always more, always more grace, always more mercy, always more forgiveness, always more love, more than we can ask for, says Paul, or even imagine. Well, the same thing is true on a smaller scale of Table Talk Radio. There's more. There's more podcasts, there's more radio shows, there's more articles to read, all at www.tabletalkradio.org. Are you tired of your coworkers always using your mug or borrowing your stapler? Well, with the Table Talk Radio mug and a strategically placed sticker, no one will ever want to touch your things again. Be the only one in your office, or any other office, to own a Table Talk Radio travel mug. Opportunity is knocking. If you act now or any time of the next decade, you can be the first to own something with the official Table Talk Radio logo on it. Table Talk Radio merchandise is available on our website, tabletalkradio.org. Martin Luther says that the most common idol in all of the world is the idol of money, that we trust in it, that we fear losing it, that we think that because we have it, we're secure. Here at Table Talk Radio, we have the solution for this idolatry. Click the Donate Now button on our website, and you will support the ongoing efforts of Table Talk Radio to spread this word of God. Table Talk Radio is listener-supported. If you would like to help with the financial needs of Table Talk Radio, just click the Donate button on our website. TabletalkRadio.org. Have you always wanted to say, the other day when I was listening to Table Talk Radio, well, now you can. And if you want to keep saying that, you can find our podcast archive on our website, www.tabletalkradio.org. Everyone's favorite Lutheran theological game show, www.tabletalkradio.org. Thanks for listening. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I can shoot up cartridges. Welcome back to Table Scraps Live, a production of Table Talk Radio. I'm Evan Gigland. We're talking about women's ordination. We're hearing it from Larry Anderson. Uh, now, Larry, before the break, oh, well, let me get the phone number, 866-851-5523 is the number if you want to join this conversation. That's 866-851-5523, or you can send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. 
Now, uh, Larry, before you uh, left off, you were talking about the different creation uh, accounts, and you said that you described to the J. Oh, what, what are the acronyms here? JEDP theory. JEDP, yeah. Now, for some of the uh, some of the listeners that may have not have heard of that before, would you mind just giving a, a, a brief explanation of what that is? <laughs> First, of all, I'm sorry. What's that? I love your choice of music. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> Golly. Uh, um, the JEDP theory, and I may not even be putting the, the letters in, in the right order, um, but in essence, the, the, the theory was put forward sometime um, mid-20th century, I suppose, um, that the, the Pentateuch was... Um, edited by a group of individuals, not necessarily all at the same time, um, but that they reflect a certain um, emphasis. Um, the J stands for those people who were uh, Yahwis. Um, e stands for individuals who had a bent towards um, an understanding of God as Elohim, so they were the Elohis. Um, the P represents the priestly interests and their editing contribution, and then the Deuteronomous, um, those people who um, had that particular bias uh, from from the, the the law, the legal portion, and that there are indications in the Pentateuch of of each of these editorial contributions making up portions uh, selections if you will, of um, the Pentateuch. And one of those is um, suggested in the, the break between Genesis 1 uh, through chapter 2, verse 3, and, and then starting at chapter 2, verse 4. There seems to be both a linguistic um, uh, break as well as a, um, a very different editorial hand when we note that the name for God um, changes. Um, and some people also would say that, that the, the creation order um, is obviously different. Uh, it's been somewhat, for the most part, reversed. Um, and, um, and so they see an editor's hand. Um, the, the Elohist would be the first portion of Genesis chapter 1 up through 2, 3, and the Yahwist, or the J editor, uh, begins at uh, verse 4, where we see the introduction of the name Yahweh um, for the first time. Um, and, of course, uh, there are others, um, some of my colleagues um, um, and friends, uh, who would say that Genesis 1 and 2 are um, complementary, um, that they don't have two distinctive um, creation narratives, um, and that chapter 2 simply unpacks, if you will, um, portions of uh, Genesis chapter 1. And that's very plausible as well. Um, but uh, for me, I, I, I see editorial hands. And, um, and so when I look at Paul's use of the second creation narrative, um, I, I see him doing that intentionally um, because it, it is indicative and is consistent with his understanding and use of the word um, head, or uh, in, in the Greek, kephale, um, which has as its 
primary uh, definition, um, source of origin, um, and um, also um, uh, unity. Um, and so when Paul talks about uh, women, and especially in, in the passages that we're looking at, um, and some others that, that we are, are alluding to, um, I think Paul is very specifically um, talking about uh, how woman in the second creation narrative does in fact um, originate out of or uh, out of man. Therefore, man is head of woman. He is the origin of woman. Um, and so I, I think that there's an important um, component to Paul's use of the second creation narrative tied to that notion. We have an email question sent to us at questions at tabletalkradio.org. You can also join the conversation by giving, giving us a call, 866-851-5523. The question is this, Larry. Is the acceptance of women's ordination, and uh, uh, is it a higher critical interpretation of the Scriptures? And are, those, are, are there those who believe that the, that the Bible is the literal word of God and still permit women's ordination? Well... I guess I would have to ask in return the question, what do you mean by literal? Um, I mean, that by itself has a wealth of meaning. Um, obviously, there are places in the Scripture that we have to take literally, um, but there are other places where we need to understand that the Scripture is metaphoric, it is, uh, I mean, poetry itself um, is suggestive of that. Uh, there are narratives in Scripture that we um, need to, to say, this is telling us the truth, um, but does that necessarily mean we have to decipher it literally? Um, so I guess I would, I'd want to know more uh, of what is meant by that term. I, I take I take Scripture, all of Scripture, as telling me the absolute truth. Um, and it's incumbent upon me to, to ask the Spirit of God to direct me as I wrestle with the biblical text. And as a part of that wrestling, um, I think God expects me to use what few... Um, gray cells I still have that function <laughs> um, to decipher um, how a particular passage um, should be interpreted. Um, and I, I, I do that whenever I, I read Scripture. I ask for the Spirit of God to guide my understanding. So if we want to say, um, take it literally in the sense that it tells us the truth, um, that God is revealing the truth to us, um, through various literary um, forms that we find in Scripture, I would say um, that many people take it literally from that de from my definition and still subscribe to the notion uh, of of women being co-equal with men in in the church in terms of ministry and ordination as well as, as, in, as in, um, in marriage. But again, it all goes back to the creation narrative, because if we look at the first creation narrative, 
God very clearly declares that man is created in his image, that man is both male and female, um, which I think addresses the whole um, attempt by some in, um, in various um, Christian communities. They, they want to say that marriage can be between members of the same sex. Well, uh, that's not possible according to the creation narrative. Um, man is represented fully in male and female, um, and in male and female, somehow they bear God's image. And it very clearly says in the first creation narrative that man, as male and female, are jointly commissioned to rule over the earth. Um, there's complete equality from the very beginning. And what happens is, is everything is altered at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And, and it's not until Genesis chapter 3 in the curse that the woman receives um, that, um, sh that man will rule over you. Um, and that may be predictive as much as, as it is a curse, but um, it, that equality is altered in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. And I would argue, as, as do many who's, who would agree with my position and understanding of Scripture, that Christ redeemed us from the curse, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3. And because of that, what Christ has done, um, he has reestablished the creation order as um, man, as male and female, are jointly commissioned and are entirely equal. That's why everything for me has to go back to the creation narrative. Let's go to Steve, who's listening in Oklahoma. Steve, you're on Table Scraps Live. Hi, guys. Hi. Uh, aside from the from doctrinal issues or or kind of a scholarly or sophisticated conversation, uh, it's it's I guess my question or point would be more of a practical matter. Mm -hmm. In that uh, I've never been to uh, to a to a church where there's a woman minister. I've never heard one live. I've only seen them on TV. Mm -hmm. But it but I find when I see them on TV that the women. Uh, it appears that they need to take on a masculine posture to be credible. Mm. So it's almost like one way or the other, masculinity needs to come out of it. Hmm. And and then Steve, Steve, could I ask you how you see that when you when you're watching them on TV? What what does that look like? I'm just curious. It's uh, it's the way they carry themselves. It's just kind of the, uh, you know, some of the uh, televangelist or, or the fire and brimstone or they get a, real animated and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, you can really see the women follow that same kind of a pattern. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like they they strut their stuff or <laughs> walk bow-legged, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, put, yeah. You know, might put their fists down. It's, it's just not a feminine posture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and like I say, in order to, to get to the to a place of credibility, it's almost as if masculinity has to kind of come to the forefront. Hmm. I, I wonder if that is a is just simply a sad commentary on um, the culture of the church over the last two thousand years, 
um, where people have to take on a certain persona um, in order to to gain respectability, whether it's maleness, um, masculinity, whether it's um, a certain um, communication uh, expectation. You know, um, I mean, I would imagine that if we if we looked carefully. Um, we could find people trying to imitate, say, a Billy Graham um, or um, um, some other, well, I mean, the church growth um, movement it w- might be another good example. Um, people see that, you know, this works for Bill Hybel, so let me imitate all the things that Bill Hybel did um, in order to gain respectability and maybe have the same kind of success he did. Um, so maybe maybe that's a part of what you're seeing. I, I'm not saying that's the whole piece, but I just wonder if it's an accommodation um, as well as a copying um, to gain credibility and maybe have the same kind of success that they've seen others see, have. Um, I, I've been very fortunate. Um, again, I grew up in a church, a denomination where women were equal with men. They've always been able to be ordained in the ministry and um, uh, and and honestly, um, because of that, um, I've I've just seen very competent women who are legitimately themselves, um, and you know they don't force anything. Um, they um, they 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 don't put on airs. They aren't histrionic. Um, and fortunately, I went to seminary. Um, in places where women um, were in the same classes with me, including my my um, homiletics or preaching classes, um, and where they didn't have to try and be something or someone they weren't, um, I, I've had very good examples of women just being themselves and using their giftedness to function in the role, both as preacher and pastor, um, so, but I, I certainly hear what you're saying, and I've seen some of that on TV as well, and and um, it, it's some somewhat off-putting for me, <laughs> whether it's men or women who do that. Um, it, it's it's off-putting. All right, thanks, Steve. Uh, you can call us eight six six eight five one five five two three, or send us an email questions at tabletalkradio.org. Uh, Larry, let's look at Galatians 3. Uh, this is a verse that, that people go to a lot in the defense for uh, women's ordination. It's uh, Galatians 3.28. Uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of people use this verse then to show, hey, look, in God's eyes, there is no distinction between male and female. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder if we can read this that... Uh, before God, quorum Deo, that, 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 that there is no distinction, that, that before God, uh, in terms of our salvation, in terms of our justification, uh, there, there's no difference, uh, that, that Jews don't have a more of a right to, to Christ's forgiveness than Greeks, uh, slaves don't more than free men, and neither male and female. But on a horizontal realm, in the realm of man, in the, in, in the realm of order, uh, that there still are distinctions amongst that. Is it possible to read this verse that way? Well, sure. I I, I wouldn't discount that as a possibility, Evan. Um, and in fact, many scholars on both sides of the equation are um, quick to point out that that 
this could be read exclusively related to um, salvation, and that it has no implications for ministry whatsoever. Um, and and so um, recognizing that that probably is the context, um, we could discount it altogether as it relates to the task of ministry. Um, but I, I think that if we do that, then we have to ask ourselves questions like, <laughs> um, why did the first century church, the first two centuries of the church actually, um, uh, shift in their thinking, not uh, as it relates to Greeks and Jews and how they related to each other in pragmatic ways. Um, all of a sudden, because of what Christ has done, Greeks and Jews are now able to sit at the same table. Um, the fact that Peter goes into Cornelius's house uh, was a radical thing, and Peter acknowledged that um, in, in chapter 10 of Acts. Um, the fact that we have not just a Christian witness and, and documents of, of uh, the transformation that took place between slaves and masters who were both believers, but the fact that we have external secular sources from the first and second century that recognize this radical social change because of what Christ has done, um, I think suggests that though this context is, is primarily focused on salvation, it had practical, pragmatic, um, and um, I think obvious um, positive and somewhat confusing witness to the Greco-Roman um, and even Jewish world of the first two centuries. They couldn't understand how this radical salvific action that was accomplished in the person of Jesus extended into real living situations, but it did. And so the salvific portion pours out into actual living. And, and I think that um, that, that reality um, speaks to um, the, the practice of the first church. The fact that we have numerous examples um, in, in the book of Acts and Paul's comments um, in Romans chapter 16 of women involved in ministry women who are functioning as prophets, um, the f that fact alone says that it's not just about their standing with God, it's also about their functioning in this new body of believers, this new covenant community that they can now have full membership in because circumcision is no, no longer the standard. It's baptism. And so it has this pragmatic um, um, element that we can't ignore. But yet at the same time we have uh, St. Paul who is uh, encouraging slaves to return to their masters and to be Correct. submissive to their, to their, to their uh, masters. So uh, how then can we, can we reconcile what you just said with, with that fact? Well, even the fact that Paul is able to, to say um, uh to Philemon, uh, would you receive Onesimus back as your brother in the Lord? Tells us that Paul believes 
that Philemon's transformation, which is accomplished by what Jesus has done, is going to alter um, this return of his slave. The fact that his slave is entertaining the possibility that he's going to go back um, suggests that this transformation is more than just salvific. It has practical outworking. Because normally, for him to go back to his master meant certain death. Um, or uh, maybe, uh, you know, just horrible punishment. But the fact that he's entertaining it says that this transformation has practical, pragmatic outworking. Uh, all right, I have an email question for you, and we're running short on time, and I want to give us both uh, a, a, a minute here at the end. So uh, the, the email question says that Paul says a pastor should be the husband of one wife. How can mm-hmm. a woman meet that requirement? That's a very good question. Um, and uh, I, would, I would ask in return, how do we understand, for example, um, in, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, um, Phoebe, who is obviously a female, is identified as a deacon. So the question is, um, is Paul's statement in Timothy um, as it relates to qualification for deacon, is it something, again, that was specific to the, the situation in Ephesus? And if not, then how do we reconcile that restriction or that requirement um, with the idea that Phoebe is recognized as a deacon? Or is Paul um, saying in a generic way that a deacon should only have one spouse? Um, so I, I think that there's a number of ways for us to, to, uh, attempt to answer that particular issue. All right. Uh, I would like to, to spend about a minute just kind of with closing thoughts and I'll give you the final minute, Larry. Okay. Um, uh, I think what we see in, in the church, um, is that, that God institutes the office of the holy ministry in the church today as a, as a special office to proclaim the forgiveness of sins um, to, to all people. And so uh, you have in John chapter 16, Jesus meets with, with the apostles, apostles and says uh, that, he, that, he, that he mandates them that, that they forgive the sins of all who repent, and those who do not repent, uh, they are to retain their sins. And then also he's speaking to the disciples in Matthew 28. He says, uh, go forth teaching all that I have commanded, um, uh, baptizing and teaching. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and so that that when Christ uh, institutes the church, He institutes a, an office that that carries out specific tasks. And, and in this case, the uh, the office of holy ministry, holy ministry is to uh, preach the word in its in its truth and purity, and to administer the sacraments uh, rightly. And so, if we can understand, then the office of the holy ministry as a calling from God and I think I think maybe different than than the the calling of all Christians. Um well certainly all Christians um well certainly all Christians proclaim the gospel and, and share Christ with their neighbor. Um not all Christians are 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 given the authority to forgive sins instead of Christ. And so I'm wondering if we can identify this pastoral office as not as a, a institution of which something that all people 
are given, but but something that only certain people are given, then it's not a, a matter of equality, as if we're saying that men are then better than women and they're then allowed to be pastors. But in fact, all men aren't uh, even called to be pastors. And so mm-hmm. the question then is, is to whom has the Lord given this work? And uh, we see that that uh, through through the institution of the church, the apostles uh, being all men, um, and through the the uh, uh, writings of Paul uh, that they were that you know he for, forbids women to teach in the church. I think that this is uh, a, a clear teaching that um, that men are to be pastors in the church and not women. Now, uh, Larry, I'll give you a couple minutes for your closing thoughts. Well. And I appreciate what you're saying, Evan. Um, but I would I would say, based on and following that that argument, um, then does that mean that the the office is uh, restricted to just Jewish men? Because that's all that Jesus was talking to when he made those statements. And obviously, neither you or I would say that that's the case. Um, but more to the point, for me is this whole restoration of equality and joint um, commission from the created order that's been restored in the salvific event of Christ. And I think that that, that has been affirmed, and, and I say that when I look at um, the Pentecost event and the declaration um, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy, which means to speak on God's behalf. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Speak on, God, on God's behalf and do the things that God um, would have them do to draw people to him so that they can be healed. Um, and for me, those are are the the core principles that um, help me understand that my sisters um, in ministry are as um, qualified and as able um, as you or I. Thank you, Evan, for right. this wonderful well, opportunity. Larry, I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, it, it's not easy, uh, and I, I appreciate uh, Larry coming on the show and 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 spending time with us. It's not easy to come on and do something like that. <laughs> In conclusion, I rejoice. I rejoice that we can have a, a conversation and that we can discuss these things and uh, in an effort to try and understand God's Word in a clearer fashion. And I rejoice yes. for the faith that we have in Christ Jesus that covers the forgiveness of all of our sins, even when we humans kind of mess it up. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Table Talk Radio. See you next time. Listening to Table Scraps Live, a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit our website, tabletalkradio.org.